0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website.
1: Uh, let's begin in prayer together in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um, And I'm going to share with you uh, the prayer of St. Polycarp, which I had mentioned was so life-changing for me as he faced certain martyrdom. Lord Almighty God, Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to the knowledge of yourself, God of the angels, of powers, of all creation, of all the race of saints who live in your sight, I bless you for judging me worthy this day, this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ, your anointed one, and so rise again to eternal life in soul and body, immortal through the power of the Holy Spirit. May I be received among the martyrs in your presence today as a rich and pleasing sacrifice, God of truth, stranger to falsehood. You have prepared this and revealed it to me, and now you have fulfilled your promise. I praise you for all things. I bless you. I glorify you through the eternal priest of heaven, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. Through him be glory to you, together with him and the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
2: Amen. Uh, Tonight's event, uh, the Road to Nicaea, the Fathers of the First Ecumenical Council. So uh, we give a warm welcome back to Dr. Howell
3: and uh, take it away. Great. Thank you, Daniel. And thank you, Father Hezekiah. Although I fear that I have nothing more to say in the light of the uh, exhortation that Father Hezekiah gave us, it, it is truly a joy for me to be in any way associated with the Institute of Catholic Culture, Let me commend you, you are doing a tremendous job, and I love the way that you've set up this apostolate, this giving of this wonderful teaching over to many people, um, and all free. Uh, May God bless you and and increase your your ministry throughout the world. I just feel privileged to be a part of it.
1: Thank you, Dr. Hamill.
3: Tonight, what I'd like to do is to to do three things this evening over this two-hour period. One is I'd like to just recap very quickly what we have done, what we talked about last week, so that we can re-enter with our thoughts, re-enter into the flow of thinking that we began last week. And then the second thing I want to do is to go through some of the historical uh, material that led up to and came out of the Council of Nicaea. Now, that historical material is vital and important. Because the historical realities of the past in the church is, you might say, the data, it's the groundwork upon which the church enters into its theological reflection. But we always need to remember that theology can never be separated from a life of prayer. I think it was St. Gregory, uh, um, the theologian, who said that the one who prays is the theologian, and and the theologian is the one who prays. So prayer is ultimately our goal here. It's to learn more about our Lord. And so in entering into the divine life of God, we will hopefully, by God's grace, grow deeper in our faith and have that faith consummated someday in union with God. What I'd like to do is, if you have a Bible with you, is to ask you to turn with me to a text that we mentioned last week but did not read. And that is John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. This, again, is a text that refers to the Trinity in a very roundabout way, but is nevertheless important for our understanding of how the doctrine of the Trinity developed. Now, John chapter 17, I should put this in context for a moment. This is what's been dubbed the High Priestly Prayer of Christ it's the fullest prayer from christ we have in the bible and this prayer was spoken on the last night of our lord's earthly life before his death it expresses what is at the very heart of jesus the god man and it expresses for us both his desire and what should be our desire the text goes like this when jesus had said these things and lifted up his eyes he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Just as you gave him authority over everyone, or over all flesh, that everyone that you have given to him, he may give to them eternal life. And this is eternal life. To know you, the only true God, and the one you sent who is Jesus Christ. I have glorified you upon earth by completing the work which you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me with that glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. This text, I think, gives us a perspective for the evening in this way. The Gospel of John is the richest theological gospel that we have. One might say that it is the fruit of the older uh, apostles, the last apostle, the one who didn't, the only one who didn't die by martyrdom, who was a young man when Jesus was on earth. After many years of reflection, he begins to recount to us the ministry of Jesus. And now in the moment before his death, Jesus turns his heart where he uh, has always been, and that is back to the Father. And what does he ask him? He asked him that he would reveal eternal life to those that the Father has given him. That's you and me, those who are baptized in the name of the Holy Trinity. We are the ones that he wants to give eternal life to. But it's so easy for us, especially perhaps in the West, to think of eternal life as something that begins when we die, or that we begin uh, after Jesus returns. This, of course, is true, but it's not enough. The eternal life that Jesus speaks of here is not a temporal category. It is a spiritual and metaphysical reality to know God himself, which, when you think about it for a moment, has to be one of the most astounding facts of the universe, that human beings like you and me could actually know God could actually live in his presence, could adore him and be loved by him. As a father would take up his children into his arms and cradle them and cuddle them and tell them that he loves them. So the father has done that. But the father, of course, is invisible. So how did he do that? And how does he do it? He does it by giving us his only begotten son. And in that son, we now can share in the glory of god now glory is a very interesting and complex idea in the gospel of john we typically think of glory as being something like the glory of fame or the glory or honor that we get by something that we do or achieve but in the gospel of john the glory at least partially it refers to the very being of god god's Very being his nature, his divine nature is in fact a glorious nature. And if we could only taste it or perhaps see it briefly, we would be overwhelmed by that glory because it would blind us by its intensity. That is the glory that Jesus seeks to return to. And so he says, Father, glorify me with that same glory that I had with you. When I was the Logos, when I was the eternal son, but before, I took on a body and a human soul and became a man. What's so amazing about this text is it reminds us that now this is Jesus, the man, the God-man, who's praying this. And in his life, he takes us up into his human and divine life and allows us to share in that glory. So last week, we talked a lot about the Old Testament and how it prepares for the New Testament uh, doctrine of the Trinity. I tried to emphasize that the Old Testament largely was silent about the nature of the Trinity, but it emphasized the uniqueness and the unity of God. We do have indications in the Old Testament, but still the prominent thought of the Old Testament is capsulized for us in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But as we go through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, we begin to see indications that this God that we thought perhaps was just unitary is in fact more. Now, God is a simple being, meaning not easy or not not in some way simplistic. But God is simple in the sense that he doesn't have parts. You and I have parts. We have hands, we have faces, we have a soul, we have a mind. We have parts to us because we're composite beings. God in and of himself is not a composite being. He is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as we'll see later toward the end of our hours tonight, that that God lives a life by himself. That is a sharing and a community of life and love. In case you forgot, to quote Darth Vader, that is your destiny. Your destiny is to live in that God. Now, last week, we went and talked a little bit about the second century fathers. We mentioned some of them and they're on the sheet. They're on page four uh, of your handout that I provided. And by the way, I should mention that the handout for tonight is the complete handout. It includes what we had last week, but it also has the new material for this week. So when I'm referring to something or reading something, I will try to refer to the page. Even though those pages are numbered, you can kind of leaf through them. What did we see in that second century? We saw that largely the church fathers like Polycarp that... Father Hezekiah mentioned, Ignatius of Antioch, and the Dalache. They speak of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they speak of God not in any, shall we say, complex philosophical terms. Some terms we'll look at later tonight when we look at the Council of Nicaea. When we come to the end of that second century, we encounter the first, usually called the first Latin theologian of the church, Tertullian. Now, Tertullian is not a saint. Why? Because at the end of his life, he turned toward Montanism. But that did not involve a denial of the Trinity. And apparently there was a man in Rome named Praxius, And Praxius had either written or taught things that compromised the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, this is important because sometimes we don't know what people really believe until they are questioned until we examine and say, well, what is it that you really believe about this? And in essence, if you look at that quotation on page five from Tertullian's treatise against Proxius, there he talks about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, about Jesus as the Son of Man and the Son of God. And what he's trying to do is counter what we might call modalism, modalism was the ancient heresy which said that god is just one person not one being but one person and that one person has been manifested throughout history under different names that one person was called the father or just the lord or adonai or yahweh in the old testament that same person was called jesus when jesus was on earth and then it's called the holy spirit now, what is wrong with that? What's wrong with it is that the names that we ascribe to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, modalism says are just names. They don't reflect the reality of who God is. And the other thing that we noticed about that is that, rightly, Tertullian says that Proxius is, he called him a pretender of yesterday. In other words, he's not carrying on the apostolic tradition. And that is the job of the church. Neither Father Hezekiah or Daniel or me or any other teacher of the faith has the right to change the faith. We are simply to be faithful to what has been handed down through the ages. (laughs) And why would we? Because what has been handed down to us, as Father Hezekiah so eloquently said, is so glorious, so wonderful. And the older I get, and the more I look at this world, this pagan world that we're living in, in America, in North America, and Europe, I look out and I say, the world desperately needs this gospel. It desperately needs Jesus Christ. And so that's why you and I must be, as Saint Catherine of Siena said, we must be a come fire itself. Burning in our souls must be this love of this Trinitarian God. So that we can share that out in the world. Now, tonight, I want to move then to the second part, and that is to talk about the history behind this. And I want to break that history into two parts. First, the time just before the Council of Nicaea, the late third, the early second, I should say, and then the third century, and then moving up into the fourth century in the Council of Nicaea. There's a lot more that could have been put in here, but for the sake of time, I want to focus just on two church fathers. Probably one of the greatest theologians among the church fathers was Saint Irenaeus of Lyon. Saint Irenaeus, we know from his own writings and from Eusebius, was born in the East. So he was Greek speaking. He was born in Smyrna and he was raised in Smyrna. And when he was a little boy, he tells us that he, along with Florinus, heard the great Polycarp preaching. And he says that even today, now as he's an older man, he can still hear the preaching of uh, Polycarp ringing in his ears. And he exhorts his friend Florinus to remember that faith that was given. What's interesting about St. Irenaeus is that he goes from the east, the eastern part, the Greek-speaking part of the church, to Lyon in Gaul, or what is modern-day France. And I've never been to Lyon, although I hope to go, and I'm sure there must be some monuments there to this great saint of the latter 2nd century and early 3rd century. Saint Irenaeus wrote this famous book called Against Heresies. And in this book, he fought against something that was kind of a development of Docetism earlier that Saint Ignatius of Antioch was fighting against that heresy could be categorized as Gnosticism. And here's what Gnosticism said. One of its points was that in order to be saved and to be in heaven, you had to have a special secret knowledge. You had to be one of those who had Gnosis. The Greek word Gnosis means knowledge. But what that meant was that some members of the church of Christ might be excluded from the glory of heaven. And St. Irenaeus affirms that the faith that was given to the apostles and passed on through the time up to his time, that faith is for everyone. As the Second Vatican Council reaffirmed, we are all important members of the church. But what was that faith that he affirmed? Well, if you look on your handout, you will see there that I've quoted actually from a young Protestant scholar who has actually done a very good job of telling us about St. Irenaeus. It's one of the most recent books on Irenaeus, on the Trinity. It wasn't that long ago that you might hear a early church scholar say that Irenaeus had what they would perhaps say, trying to be nice, they would say a sub-Nicene view of the Trinity. And What that means is that he didn't really view the Trinity the same way the Nicene fathers did. Well, I suppose we'll never know that for sure until we get to heaven. But what this young scholar, his name is Jackson Lachere, what he's done is he's shown that in reading against heresies, we begin to see that Irenaeus had a much more developed theology of the Trinity than maybe scholars had thought. So if you look down in the middle of that page, you'll see that I've quoted from St. Irenaeus. God the Father, uncreated, who is uncontained, invisible, one God, creator of the universe. This is the first article of our faith. The second is the Word of God, and this is the word logos, of course. The Word of God, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who appeared to the prophets according to their way of prophesying, and according to the dispensation of the Father. In other words, the Word of God, the Logos, the eternal Word, was dropping seeds in the Old Testament about what was to come. It was St. Augustine, I believe, who said that the New Testament is hidden in the Old, and the Old Testament is revealed in the New. The progressive nature of the revelation of God reveals so many rich treasures some of which we might never have guessed, but there were hints of it in the Old Testament. That seems to be what St. Irenaeus is saying. We go on. Through him, all things were created. Furthermore, in the fullness of time, in order to gather all things to himself, he became a human being amongst human beings, capable of being seen and touched, to destroy death, to bring life and to restore fellowship between God and humanity. That's the second article. The third article is this. The Holy Spirit, through whom the prophets prophesied and our forebears learned of God and the righteous were led in the paths of justice and who in the fullness of time was poured out, that's a significant verb, I think, was poured out in a new way on our human nature in order to restore humanity throughout the entire world in the sight of God. Clearly, St. Irenaeus's faith is the faith in a Trinitarian God. He breaks it down by article. The first article is the Father, the second is the eternal word, the Logos, and the third is the Holy Spirit. Now, he does not talk about their equality and so forth. He doesn't necessarily talk about their sharing of a divine nature. And perhaps the reason for that is that everybody believed it in that time, and he didn't need to say it at all. And if you're experienced in reading ancient documents, or for that matter, reading Shakespeare, you'll notice there's a lot of things that are implied in those documents, which you have to know something about the culture of the time. Now, we can only reconstruct that to some degree, and that's the job of scholars to do that. But nevertheless, you can begin to see that essential to this faith, remember, he was from the East, but he was a bishop in the West. This is the faith of the whole church the church Catholic that believes in this Trinitarian God. Notice a second point, that these three members of the Trinity are not all the same. That is to say that they each have both a distinct, as it were, existence, and a distinct function in the world. Theologians sometimes make the distinction between the Trinity viewed ontologically and or economically. Ontologically means the Trinity as God is in in himself. And we'll talk about that later in our talk tonight. But to speak of the Trinity in economic terms is to speak of how God has revealed himself in it. Last week, you remember, we read the account of Jesus' baptism where the voice of the Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son. And then we saw, of course, the Son himself being baptized by John in order, as he told John, to fulfill all righteousness. And then we find that the Spirit comes down under the symbolism and the form of a dove to rest upon Jesus, to show the unity, how that what Jesus did on earth, whether it was healing or teaching or whatever, that Jesus was acting as the agent of the Father and the Spirit. Now, what I'd like to do is to move on very quickly then, in the second part of this next part, to talk about another theologian of the, the mid-third century named Novation. Now, I have to be careful about Novation because you, when you read about him, like if you go to Wikipedia, and so, he will be called an anti-pope. Right? He is the first, I think, I remember, the first anti-pope. In other words, that means that he tried to become the bishop of Rome when, I think it was Cornelius was the bishop of Rome, or maybe it was Fabian before him. In other words, Novation thought that the bishop of Rome wasn't doing a, the right kind of thing, and so he found people and got himself ordained to be the pope. Was that right? Well, of course not. But that doesn't mean that what he says about the Trinity is not true. And so I've given you a summary of his famous treatise on the Trinity. And in that, he is again addressing the problem that the earlier fathers were dealing with, Tertullian especially. He's fighting against, he's contending with the modalist, who again want to say that God is manifested in different ways. Now I just wondered is to step back for a moment, maybe I wonder if we have any of our 200 people listening to us tonight, if we have any sociologists. Now, sociologists are, I suppose they're wonderful people, but, uh, you know, the thing about sociologists is, and believe me, i rubbed shoulders with them for a long time in academia, is they usually make up all these surveys to tell us what we probably knew anyway. If you made up a survey and gave it to Catholics coming to church every Sunday, and you gave them some questions about the Trinity. I wonder what percentage of them would be able to distinguish the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity from heresy. I'll bet you that some of them would think that modalism is the doctrine of the Trinity or tritheism is. And the reason is this. And I don't mean to be critical of them. I'm just saying it's because they don't understand. And that's why this work of the. Institute is so important to educate people about what the true faith is. What might they say? They might say that, let's say, that like modalism, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are like three names for the same God. Or tritheism, that there's three sort of divine beings and they don't really have any connection with one another. That's sort of a mild form of tritheism. Why would they say that? Because When we try to understand the doctrine of the Trinity, it is very important that we use precise language. Because if we don't, it's like Chesterton said, G.K. Chesterton. He said that the romance of orthodoxy was like walking on a tightrope. And if you lean too far to the right or too far to the left, you'll fall off the tightrope. That's what makes being an Orthodox Christian so exciting, you see, because it engages your mind and it engages your heart. So looking at Novation, we have to remember that he's before the Council of Nicaea. So he doesn't have that precise language just yet, but he has so many things that are valuable. So if you look at page seven on the handout, you'll notice that he talks about God in some very interesting ways now at the top of page seven i tried to point out that these modalists if god is just one person then there is implied no true dynamism in god this is a very important point so many people think of god as the big grandfather in the sky you know as he sits back in his static being and watches over everything that goes on. Maybe he cares and maybe he doesn't. But God is not a static being. When it says in the Gospel of John, like John one eighteen, that the eternal logos was the only begotten, the unigenitus in Latin, the monogenes in Greek, what it's saying is that there's a flow of life And a flow of love, so much so in God that it gives birth to new life. Now, the Eastern Fathers of the Church, and I haven't really quoted many of them here tonight, but the Eastern Fathers of the Church tend to emphasize that God, in being this being who is dynamic, is one who, in generating the Son, is the source of all life in the Trinity. That's the sense in which the Father is bigger or shall we say more important or the origin. The origin of life is in the Father and the begetting, the the giving eternal uh, life in generating the Son is the business, so to speak, of the Father and that relationship. Between father and son, and the the love that the son returns to the father, then, out of that love, there is a new being, as it were, that is created. And that is the third person of the Trinity in the Holy Spirit. Have you ever asked yourself, why did God create us human beings to be male and female? Why? Did he give us the power to procreate life? You know, in my life, I've oh, done a few things. <laughs> I was a presbyterian minister, as Daniel mentioned. And i you know, done a lot of study and studied various things, not just theology, but philosophy and history and, and science and languages and all of that. I have achieved nothing more important than helping my wife to give birth to children. Children are the supreme gift of marriage. And now, and by the way, just Sunday, my fifth or sixth, I can't remember now, grandchild, was born. My son and his wife in Germany just had their child. And of course, the great thing about being a grandparent is that if I had known how great it was, I would have been one first. You know, it was just so good. What could surpass no accomplishments, be the academic or athletic or entertainment, nothing compares to the giving of new life. Why are we this way? Could it be that that's how God is? He's a being who of his very nature gives life and receives life back. And out of that, there is eternal life of love. Well, that was the evolving development of the church's understanding. Let's go now just for a few moments to talk about Novation, to see how he was another step in this development. On page seven, this is from chapter 24 of his treatise on the Trinity. The Son of God who came down while he took on the Son of Man into himself and in turn made him the Son of God because the Son of God united and joined him to himself. That while the Son of Man was attached to the Son of God in his birth, he might hold by, and I translated this by a mixture. Maybe that's not the best word, but again, remember, Novation isn't using precise terms here the way they did later. By a mixture, he might hold by a mixture what he had gained and borrowed but could not possess by his own nature in other words being divine god couldn't be human but that's the love of god that he took upon himself by an act of his will our human nature and so this is what the angel's voice proclaimed which heretics do not want to hear that there is a distinction now that's important there's a distinction between the Son of God and the Son of Man, and yet that distinction is with a union of them together, which we would later, if we had time to go into this later, we would see in the Council of Ephesus, the Council of Chalcedon, was exactly what the Church defined, which we celebrate in the Western Church every January 1st under Mary, the Mother of God. In other words, that there is this union, there's no mixture, but there's a union of the divine and the human in Jesus Christ so he says that these heretics he's talking about let them accept the word the verbum of god and he means referring to the logos as god so he fully affirms the divinity of jesus christ and that therefore jesus christ was formed and made physical from both ex utroque, from both in other words he was human and he was divine and this was a, by a harmony of both substances. Now, that's an important word. The substance is the word substantia in Latin, and then that translates the Greek word ousia. We're going to come back to that word ousia. Ousia means the nature or the being of God. Later, in chapter 31, we hear Novation saying this. Therefore, God, the Father, is the founder and creator of all. He alone knows no beginning. He is the one invisible, immense, immortal, and eternal God. I would say that, I would excuse me, I would not say that nothing could be preferred like this, but rather that nothing can be even compared to these things. Just to underscore that for a moment. We try to understand God from our human intellects, but we have to understand that God is so far above us, we cannot possibly comprehend the kind of being that he is. But the promise and our hope as Christians is that someday we will be suffused with that divine nature. And we will understand by experience, if not by our intellects, what it means, that that God is beyond compare. He goes on, when he wished the word the Son was born from him, and so he, because he was generated by the Father, was always in the Father. Just like you, fathers and mothers out there, you pass on your genes to your children, so he was in God, the Father, and then was generated out of that. Well, we could go on, and thus I say always, that I may show him not to be unborn, but born. And I think what he means here is born of the Father eternally. But he who was before all time must be said to have always been in the Father. For no time can be assigned to him who was before all time. Let me read that again. No time could be ascribed to the Son, the eternal Son, No time could be ascribed or assigned to him who is before all time. That's important. Because we're going to see in just a few moments that the famous phrase of the heretic Arius, you know what he said? He began to teach there was a time when the word was not. When he didn't exist. That. The church immediately erupted and reacted against that. Why? I would say it's because everybody in the church, or most everybody, understood what Novation is saying here that you can't ascribe time to this eternal being. He was before all time. So here you get a pretty strong sense that he's always in the Father, that he was always with the Father as saint john says in the beginning of his gospel and that a few lines down after the dots that this is god proceeding from god remember what the creed says god from god light from light true god from true god causing a person second to the father as being the son but not taking from the father that characteristic that he is one god in other words He's fighting against the modalist who want to say, oh, he's the one God, just under a different form. If he had not been born, compared with him who is unborn, and <clears throat> equality being manifested in both, he would make two unborn beings, and thus would make two gods. In other words, the eternal word is generated from the Father because his, his being was in the Father but it's not as if he was independent from the Father. And that is the beauty of our Trinitarian faith, that the beings of the Father, Son, and Spirit, these three persons, are interdependent in a, well, I guess the only word we can say is mystical way, because they share so deeply in the life of one another. Now, a few minutes ago, I spoke about husbands and wives, in in the sacrament of marriage. And that is the goal of our marriages, to reflect that communion between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In that regard, I would strongly recommend the uh, Theology of the Body lectures of St. John Paul II. St. John Paul gave these theology lectures uh, back in the 1980s in order to underscore the Trinitarian foundation of the sacrament of marriage. And thereby, he lifted in our awareness the sacrament of marriage in a way that perhaps had not quite been done before that. They are beautiful lectures, and they are tremendously insightful about human nature. So I strongly recommend to you that if you want to do some more study, study the Theology of the Body lectures from John Paul II. Okay, that is the first part of the history of about the 3rd century. Now we come into the early 3rd or early 4th century. And if you turn to page 8 in your outline, we'll talk now a little bit more about the Council of Nicaea. I think in order to understand this in a truly human sense, we have to take a step back for just a moment. And we have to remember what was taking place on the ground, so to speak, in the actual history of the church at this point. By this time, churches certainly had been built in various parts of the Roman Empire. But by and large, Christians were left alone by the Roman authorities, except for sporadic kinds of uh, persecutions here and there in the mid third century that changed and i'm going to go from the mid third century around the year 250 and i'm going to describe that and then i'm going to jump to 50 years later during the time of diocletian the emperor around 40 249 and 250 a.d this was the time that saint cyprian was the bishop of carthage in north africa and cornelius was the bishop or the pope in Rome? Gessius, Decius, D E C I U S, Decius became emperor in the year 249. He had been a military man and he was deeply concerned about something. You see, the Roman Empire was beginning to crumble and to fall apart. And he wanted to bring people together and some kind of common commitment or faith or whatever to unify the empire again now the significance of this is that he didn't want to persecute the christians per se he just wanted the loyalty of everyone about him so what he did was he made a decree which said that not, not just in one place or this place or that place be it Smyrna or rome or whatever but all across the empire everyone had to show their loyalty by sacrificing to the emperor now i want you to understand this from both the christian point of view but also from Decius's point of view or the roman point of view the romans didn't care about the details of the Christian faith. They didn't even understand them. Then earlier, they had accused Christians of being cannibals because they ate the body of their God. And they accused them of cannibalism because they loved their brothers and sisters. You see, that shows how little they understood the faith. What did they want and why is this relevant to us? What they wanted was sociopolitical conformity many of the people today in our own country and otherwise they don't know the details to understand the catholic or christian faith what do they want they want political conformity it's exactly the problem that christians in the mid-third century were facing let's make a long story short and this is a fascinating decade of history Many people during that time, both in North Africa and in other places, died. And when we come forward to the year 258, I think it was January of that, now Pope Cornelius is martyred for the faith. And then later in September, perhaps one of the most famous martyrdoms, that of St. Cyprian himself, on September the 14th, 258, in Carthage, he dies. He is martyred for the faith. Now, the reason that they did that is that what was political conformity from the Roman point of view was a betrayal of Christ from the Christian point of view. And we need to understand that because people don't have to come at us and say, oh, we hate your Christian faith. They might even say, you practice your faith, and that's okay, as long as you conform to our political ideas. But you see, the Christians said, but conforming to your political ideas means it's tantamount to denying the faith of Christ and the faith in Christ. And so today, persecution isn't that much different. I say this because there are some people, even some scholars, even at some Catholic universities, who say that Christians weren't really persecuted during this time because they weren't specifically targeting Christianity. Well, maybe they weren't targeting Christianity, but what they were targeting was Christians by virtue of asking for this political conformity. Now, you might ask, what does that have to do with the Trinity? Many people apostatized during those persecutions. They left the faith. And the reason they did was why the Institute of Catholic Culture exists they didn't understand the faith. And therefore, they didn't embrace the faith. They didn't hold it dear. And so if we fast forward now to the beginning of the 4th century, around the year 303 or so, we hear now the next great persecution, the empire-wide persecution of Diocletian. And we know from martyrs' accounts that there were many, many martyrs for the faith during that time. Diocletian reigned from 284 to 305. And during that time, as you can, again, read online, you can go on and see all of the martyrs that died. In 305, his successor was Constantine. Now, Constantine was not a Christian, but his mother, Helen, was a Christian. And in fact, that's how we got the relics of the true cross was because Constantine, out of deference to his mother, gave her Roman soldiers to go to the Holy Land and to find the true cross. There's a famous story, and some people have doubted its authenticity, and we don't really know whether it's true, but it's a good story to tell in terms of getting the point across, that there's a bridge in Rome in the north part of Rome called the Milvian Bridge, and I've been there. And in the Milvian Bridge, or at the Milvian Bridge, of course, long before they had modern warfare, they had to cross the bridge because Licinius, who was the Eastern Emperor, and Constantine, who was the West, they were going to battle one another for supremacy. Then, what happened was, the night before the battle was going to come, Constantine supposedly had a dream. And in this dream, God, whoever was the angel that revealed this to him, said the sign of the cross in his dream in the sky and repeated the words in hoc signo vinces or vinces. In this sign, you will conquer. The next day, Constantine was so taken by this dream that he had that he ordered that all the banners that the Roman soldiers would hold to show that they changed the sign of Rome to the sign of the cross. And then, Constantine and Licinius went to battle, and I don't recall if I ever knew the actual outcome of the battle, but in the outcome of it, both Licinius and Constantine agreed that there needed to be a stopping of the persecution against the Christians. So for the first time in Roman history, in what was called the Edict of Milan or the Edict of Toleration, Christianity came out from the underground now christians could live and work openly there were undoubtedly churches still in rome for example if you go in rome uh not far from the Colosseum, you can go to the church of saint clement and in that church there are three at least three as i remember three levels of it it's about a 12th century basilica that's there and then below that is a 4th century basilica and then below that was where the, um, Mithraic religion worshiped, and then it was taken over by Christians later. So there were churches in Rome, but they weren't too visible in the Roman Empire. By this time, by the way, by the time of Ignatius of Antioch, even in 107 AD, the Colosseum had been built because the Colosseum started to be built in the 80s of the first century. So people knew the Christians were there, but And they were still kind of underground until the Edict of Milan. Now, it's worth pointing out at this point that before this time, Christians had viewed the Romans in general and other people around them as sort of the battle for Christians was on the outside of the church. In other words, the church had its true enemy on the outside. Now, as we've seen in the case of Novation, the case of Tertullian, there were also heresies from within, and the church has always been plagued by heresies, no less today than then. But nevertheless, the perception, I think, was that it's the Romans we really need to worry about. And the Romans, by that I mean all the people who were the pagans outside the church. Now comes the edict of toleration, and Christians can be very open about their faith now if i may you might say spiritualize for just a moment this is so characteristic of the devil's tactics if he can't attack the church from the outside what does he do he begins to attack the church from the inside and so down in alexandria the great city of egypt that alexander the great began to have built by this time it is a great city with a great library. It's an educational center. There's a catechetical school, even going back as far as origin and uh, in Clement of Alexandria. Now, down in Alexandria, there is a presbyter named Arius or Arios in Greek. And what does he begin to teach? There was a time when the Logos was not. In other words, instead of the Logos being eternal, the Logos now was created. This, of course, is what modern Mormons and modern Jehovah's Witnesses believe. The Logos is not eternal. And it's fair to say that a firestorm broke out in the church about this. Why? Because even though Perhaps the, the simplest of Christians, meaning those that were uneducated and so forth, even though they could not articulate why, they knew that something was wrong. Many centuries later in the 19th century, John Henry Newman will talk about the sensus the fidelium, the sense of the faith that the faithful often had. Did you realize that as we will see, a little bit later after the Council of Nicaea that at least half of the bishops of the church were heretics they abandoned the, the Nicene faith and became semi-Aryans and other kinds of uh, variations on on the Nicene faith. Some of them, while still professing that they believed that faith that's where St. Athanasius is going to come in in just a moment and where St. Hilary is going to come in in the West but The important thing to remember is this. We'll describe, when we come back in just a moment, we'll describe the Council of Nicaea for you. But remember this, that the central issue here is that Arius is teaching that the Logos was created and therefore not eternal. If he was not eternal, then it's clearly he was not fully God with the Father, why is that important at the end of our next hour we're going to take about 15 or 20 minutes to reflect on the practical importance of this and essentially it comes down to this this is what saint athanasius so beautifully and so wisely taught us that if the son the eternal son was not fully divine then what that meant was that If, let's say, he was 99% equivalent to the Father, then how much could he save us? He could save us 99%, but he could never take us back to God. That's not salvation at all, because to be only 99% of the way there is not to be there at all. So you see, that's why the Christians reacted against Arius so strongly, because they knew it wasn't just a matter of some arcane, esoteric, theological arguing. It was about the very nature of our salvation. Let's take a break for just a moment, and then we'll come back when they tell me to. I think I'll be in re-enter into our thoughts together by telling you a story, a true story, that happened to me about seven or eight years ago. One of my students at the University of Illinois was uh, friends with a young man who was a philosophy student at Benedictine College. Now, Benedictine is really one of those faithful schools where they're really trying to revive and to strengthen the Catholic identity of that Catholic school. This young man was struggling with questions of faith, and it's easy to do that in philosophy because philosophy is the deepest form of human knowledge they can possibly have. And it oftentimes raises difficult questions. And I think he was honestly a young man who was seeking, had been raised Catholic and so forth. One night we were out in Denver and we sat down in the lobby of this hotel and he we were batting around philosophical and theological things. And he was saying about this and that other thing and so forth, including the proofs for the existence of God and all of that. It was getting late and we needed to go to bed. He kind of leaned over and he said, Dr. Hale, tell me, are you really sure that God exists? Are you really sure that God exists? And I said, can I prove to you that God exists beyond a shadow of a doubt? No, I can't prove to you that God exists, that our God exists, that the Catholic God exists. But I'll tell you what, I'm throwing all my eggs in that basket. That's the question that these people were facing at the Council of Nicaea, where are we going to put our capital? Where are we going to put all of our life and our efforts? What is worth living for? And so when they heard Arius talking, teaching, and as that was being spread throughout the church, there was truly a kind of revolutionary spirit that was coming out of that. By the way, just parenthetically, there's an important lesson there. It's amazing how many people hear things and just repeat them and don't think through what's really being said. If that had happened in the early 4th century, let's say during the time of Constantine between 305 and 313, or let's say 313 to 325, if that had happened, and people were just repeating all these things that Arius was saying and maybe other people were saying, and no one had really sat down and said, is this really true? It could easily have been, the faith could have been lost. But God in his mercy called upon the bishops of the church. And as it says in my outline, 318 bishops came together, convened by the emperor Constantine, on June the 19th to begin the Council of Nicaea. And the question before them was, was, a question that, again, to many people will seem arcane. I mean, think about it. how many people today, non-Christians, pagans, would say, Oh, I don't care if you believe in the Trinity or not. Doesn't matter. No big deal. Because to them, it's just some arcane belief that Christians have. But when we understand the Trinity, we understand that it is the very heart, not only of our faith, but of reality itself. So, what was Arius' teaching? Well, I have in front of me, this is a very famous book. It's called, everybody calls it Densinger, all right? Because it is a book that has all the creeds of the church from the very beginning to now. I want to read to you what the council said about Arius. However, those who say there was a time when he or the word was not, and they say, before he was born, he was not, and that he was made from nothing, or who say that the Son of God may be of a different, and I'm going to use a technical word now, hypostasis from the Father, a different essence from the Father, may, may be created, and subject to change and alteration, such persons, the catholic church anathematizes that summarizes the teaching of arius it seems so short but it is so momentous to understand what was being said now there's two things i want to note one i've already noted in the first session and but let's underscore it again that for arius what he was teaching implied that the eternal word, or the word of God, the Logos, was not in fact eternal, and therefore couldn't be equivalent to God. But let's say, for just a moment, that someone out there said, well, okay, he is eternal. Is that okay? What the council also says is that it's wrong to believe that this eternal word was of a different substance, or hypostasis, from the Father. Now, the word hypostasis is a Greek word that will later be used again in the Council of Ephesus and the Council of Chalcedon. And this is where we speak of the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union means that there was a hypostasis of the Son, of the Eternal Word, to which a human nature was joined. And there, we have the absolutely unique, in all the universe, a being who where divinity and humanity are not mixed, but joined. Joined in his hypostasis, his, we would say today, his person. So that he's two divine natures in one person. Now that's a little bit later. But you can see how what happened later grew out of the controversies that began with Arius. Now, it might seem a little bit redundant if you're a faithful Catholic, but I want us to take note tonight of what these words are saying. The Creed says that we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of all things, visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the monogenes, the only begotten, generated from the Father. That is, from the being of the Father. And then it has this famous phrase we say every Sunday, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. That phrase is key, that he was begotten, not made. In other words, the Father didn't one day in eternity say, I believe that I will now create the Son. I believe now that I will generate a new being. In other words, the eternal word of God does not exist because the Father willed him to exist. He exists out of the very being of the Father. Let me give you an analogy. The words that I'm using right now, the thoughts that you are having, are a result of your volition, of your choice. But there are things going on within your body that we call in the autonomic nervous system that are automatic, right? Right? You breathe. You don't think about breathing. You simply do it. It's part of your being to do that until life is taken from you. In the same way, the eternal word was not a result of the Father's decision to create. The eternal word is eternally part of that, you might say, autonomic nervous system in God. He flows from the being of the father but then it goes on begotten not made and then it says it again one in being with the father now let's think about that for just a moment this is in the original greek and this by the way is on your sheet the handout that i gave you on the first page i gave you several technical theological terms that are important here this word is crucial when it's translated one in being with the father, the Greek word is homoousion to patri. Homoousion. Like the word homogeneous, homo means the same. And in Greek, there are two words that are very closely pronounced. One is homoousion and the other is homoousion. Homoousion means the same being. The homoeyousion means a like being. So there's a world of difference between this. And this is what the council fathers understood. If we say that the eternal word of God, the logos, even if we say that he is eternal, is just a like being like the father, then again, he can only make us like God, but not bring us to God. We'll come back to this in just a moment, but think of it this way. What is the most precious thing to you in the world? What do you cherish more than anything else? That's a difficult question for us to answer because we're such fickle human beings. We Tend to value many things. But in the being of God, the Father has such a cherishing affection for his eternal Son that, as it were, the thoughts of the Father cannot be imagined apart from the Son or the Son from the Father. What we'll see at the end of our evening this hour is that you and I are then taken up into that being of God, and we experience the fullness of his divine life in us. This is the doctrine of deification or divinization that we find within the church. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but I'm not going to go into that right now. The next part of the creed that we say every Sunday reminds us of this, that this being, through whom, all the world all the universe in its 14.3 billion light years away all of that came into being through him and then we turn our thoughts from the ethereal to the earthly and he says for us men and for our salvation he came down and became flesh Echoing the words of John 14, the logos became flesh and tabernacled among us. Let me strab- stress that I translated the Greek word skenoo there, he tabernacled among us. Some versions will say he pitched his tent. Almost all scholars of the gospel of John recognize that John here is using a vocabulary which alludes to the tabernacle of the Old Testament. Which was the supreme expression, and then later the temple, the tabernacle and the temple, the supreme expression of the presence of God in the world, among the chosen people of Israel. So, that eternal glory that Jesus spoke of in his high priestly prayer, that what he had before the foundation of the world, has become flesh and was made man and then suffered and rose again on the third day. He ascended into heaven and will come again to judge the living and the dead. What was this great achievement at the Council of Nicaea? In a very relatively short creed, they gave us a creed that changed the world. Oh, Ken, you're being too flowery. You're saying that this had some great impact upon the world did you realize that Europe would not have been what it became as a Christian continent in the Middle Ages and in the early modern period had it not been for this Trinitarian faith? And that is why we will see that St. Athanasius in the East and St. Hilary in the West were so fervent to defend this Nicene faith because they realized that if this faith was given up or was compromised in some way, what we would have is the demise, not just of a faith of a few million people, but the very collapse of civilization. Oh now Ken, you're being too extravagant in your descriptions, right? No. Read Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. He has repeatedly said when he was you know actively in ministry, he repeatedly said to his fellow Europeans, of course he's German, saying to his fellow German bishops and all over Europe, if you do not recognize the Christian nature of Europe, Europe will die. My son and his wife lived in Rome for about seven years and now they live in Germany. And my son speaks five languages and he travels all over Europe and so forth. And he tells me, now, what Pope Benedict was talking about is really true, but just like many bishops in the time after the Council of Nicaea couldn't see the detrimental effects of giving up this faith or of compromising the faith. So many bishops today, or maybe many priests or many lay people, they can't see. This is why it is so crucial that we be lovers of truth and that we be lovers and he's willing to live this faith out. So, what was this faith again? This faith is summarized in the words I said under the council's profession of faith on the handout. Begotten, not made. That says two things. That the eternal logos, the word, is eternal. That it is not created by the will of the Father, but flows out of the being of the Father. Further, that being begotten means that God is not just a big teddy bear in the sky. God is a dynamic being in which life and love are flowing in everything that is good. Everything that is true and good and beautiful comes ultimately from God. Now, let me just pause there for a moment because I know I'm going to transport a little bit of medieval theology back into the early church, but I think it's legitimate. The the medieval theologians finally began to speak of the three transcendentals: truth, goodness, and beauty. And almost everything that is, you might say right about our world can be looked at under these three sort of ways of looking at things. truth, goodness, and beauty we see these as different we say for example that a statement like there is one god is a true statement but we don't necessarily look at as being beautiful we look at something like saying that marriage is good or children are a good to be cherished or love is a good thing we look at that as a moral statement We don't necessarily look at it as a true statement like 2 plus 2 equals 4 or a beautiful statement like, oh, the sky is so beautiful tonight. We look at it as a good statement. If we could stand somewhere, let's say, before the Matterhorn or where I grew up in Florida, you can see if you go out and look over the Gulf of Mexico where I used to go as a boy, you could see the sun going down over the Gulf of Mexico at night. And it's a beautiful scene. But I wouldn't have ever said as a boy, oh, that's true, or that's good. Maybe good, but not in an ethical sense. We use truth with respect to facts, like two plus two equals four. We use good with respect to moral judgments, like loving your neighbor as yourself is good. We see beauty as something that has an aesthetic quality about it. But if all of these wonderful let's just call them virtues for now if these three virtues or these three transcendentals came from the being of god then ultimately truth goodness and beauty all converge into one being who is god think of the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your life the most beautiful music you've ever heard. You ain't seen nothing yet. You wait till you say, wait till you're in God. Wow, is that gonna be beautiful? Is that gonna be good? And is that going to be true? And when you know truth, it sets you free. When you know truth, it allows you to begin to even desire to be good and to even appreciate the beauty around you. The Council Fathers, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, remind us that this is God and that He is a dynamic being in which truth and goodness and beauty are shared among the members of the Trinity. This is the eternal generation of the Son. This is what it meant, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Now, one final philosophical point why this is important. You see, the council fathers lived in a time when there were some pagan philosophers, particularly what were called the Neoplatonists. The most famous, of course, was Plotinus, and then his students, Porphyry and Iamblichus. Now, Neoplatonism was not completely wrong philosophy. And in fact, it influenced St. Augustine tremendously. He says in the Confessions that he began reading Cicero's Hortensius, which is now a lost dialogue, but he began to read the Neoplatonists. And he said that they found things that are true about God. But there's one thing that they didn't understand about God. Unlike Plato, their great philosophical grandfather, the Neoplatonists thought of reality as divided or in a increasing scale toward what they called unity or the one. Some beings were closer to that one and some were far away. And can you imagine, can you guess who was far away? Yes, you and me. Why? Because we are material matter. And like the Manichaeans, they thought of material matter as being bad in order to have salvation you had to escape that material matter now never let it be thought that that's christianity that's not christianity does not condemn the material world but what it does is it says that our nature both because we're finite and because we are sinners and we have that that disease called original sin we have to be divinized And that is why it's important to understand God from God, light from light, true God from true God. If Neoplatonism were true, all we could do would be to ascend the scale of being, to try to get up there as best we could. Kind of like in Hinduism, where you come back over and over and over again in order to rise in the caste system. But if that final being is God from God and light from light, true God from true God, Then, as it were, we jump over all of those levels. We jump from this level of humanity into the level of divinity. But unlike the Platonists, we do not cease to be human. In fact, we can say, as John Paul II tried over and over again to say, it's by being divinized that we become fully human. So what is man? What is a man of faith? It's a man that's fully alive. As Saint Irenaeus said, that's what it means to be saved. And that is why these council fathers, I think, beyond their own ability, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, maintain this faith for us. That Logos is not a different substance, a different kind of being from the Father. He is the same. He is homoousion. Not homoi usion. He is a same substance as the Father. Well, the council was over. And just as a historical uh, matter of learning something from church history about the way things go, you would think, okay, well, they all gathered at Nicaea and they made this wonderful creed and they went out to all their churches and they preached it. And Arius was gone and all was rosy and wonderful. uh. Uh-uh. It took another 75 or 80 years, well, 50 years, until the Council of Constantinople, which we don't have time to think about tonight. But the Council of Constantinople in 381 was a consummation of the Council of Nicaea, where then people began to ask, well, I mean, where does this leave the Holy Spirit? And so at the Council of Constantinople, the first Council of Constantinople, that's where they defined more clearly the substance the being and the ministry of the holy spirit but tonight what i want to do is share with you for you know 15 or 20 minutes now two of the great saints who were defenders of the trinity during the time between the council of uh, nicaea and the council of constantinople but do not think for a moment that these were the only fathers in fact next week I've been invited to go to a Greek Orthodox church because there is a, in my town where I live here in Illinois, there I'm very good friends with the the priest of the Greek Orthodox church. And because I translate a lot from ancient Greek and from the Greek fathers, uh, we've become very good friends. Well, next week is their feast of the three hierarchs. That's St. Basil. St. Gregory the Theologian, or Gregory of Nazianzen, and Basil's younger brother, St. Gregory of Nyssa. All three of these men, but especially the latter two, were tremendous theologians and defenders of the Trinitarian faith. And they weren't the only ones, but they were important ones. Just parenthetically, by the way, if I could remember the name of the theologian in Rome... (laughs) I can't remember his name now. He's a young man. He's in his early 40s, and he is a brilliant theologian. He was a PhD in physics and then started studying theology, and he is a... Giulio, not Julio, Giulio, that's his first name. I can't think of his last name. He teaches at the University of Holy Cross in Rome, and he has done a lot of study of Gregory of Nyssa, and he's written about Gregory of Nyssa's theology of the trinity so when i get his name back my, my my son is good friends with him that's how i got to know him uh, i'll get it to you but i'm just using that as an example there's so much more to explore about this about the trinity and this one theologian has delved deeply into the writings of saint gregory of Nyssa to try to explain and bring out more what his teaching about the trinity was if you want to become a deep thinking and praying christian you want to understand these things more and you might be surprised at how much there is to understand there it is julio maspero that's his name father maspero is a uh, a opus dei priest and a wonderful man, and a brilliant theologian. All right, back to the main theme now. These two great defenders of the faith. The one that a lot of people know about is St. Athanasius. St. Athanasius was a young priest that served his uncle, who was the bishop of Alexandria at the time of the Canaanite Council. The, The uncle's name was Alexander. And Athanasius, his nephew, accompanied him to the council. So Athanasius, as it were, probably heard all the deliberations, all the speeches, all the wrestlings that took place in those 318 bishops. Later, as he went back to Alexandria, and of course, remember, that's where the heresy originated, was in Alexandria, he began to teach the faith. And I have no doubt, In fact, we know that he was banned from there many times after he became the bishop. He was banned, I think it was like four or five times, from Alexandria by the authorities. Maybe it was the emperor, I can't remember which. But he did not waver for a moment in his defense of the faith. Let's read the quotation that's here. And there's many quotations. His most famous writing is called On the Incarnation of the Word. And that maybe it's Incarnazione Verbi in Latin. You maybe want to read that. It's on the internet in English. And uh, you're certainly encouraged to read that. But I've just taken one quotation for the sake of time. Here's what he says in one of his letters. Light, radiance, and grace are in the Trinity and from the Trinity. It will not be out of place to consider the ancient tradition teaching and faith of the catholic church i guess being something of a historian i like that emphasis in other words you see how he's saying we're just preserving what was already there which was revealed by the lord proclaimed by the apostles and guarded by the fathers for upon this faith the church is built and if anyone were to lapse from it He would no longer be a Christian, either in fact or in name. Skipping forward in the letter, he says, We acknowledge the Trinity, holy and perfect, to consist of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In this Trinity, there is no intrusion of any element, any alien element, or of anything from outside. Nor is the Trinity a blend of creative and created being. Because in essence, if Arius had said, well, I still believe in the Trinity, I just believe that there's a created being in the Trinity, that would still be contrary to the historic faith. There's no blend of a creative and a created being. It is a wholly creative and energizing reality. Now, I have to apologize to you. I should have gone back and looked at this in the Greek text to see what Greek word was being translated by energizing. It could be two words. It could be energeo, from which we get the word energize, or it might be zoepoel, which means making life. But in either case, what it's saying is, again, that God is not just creative in the sense of, bang, he created something and there it was. What it's saying is that God infuses himself into the world. God is not out there. God is right next to you. The problem is you can't access it. Because you see, you live in three dimensions. God is in the fourth dimension. But if you could open the door to that other dimension, you'd be with God. The church teaches and has taught for a long, long time that God dwells in every particle of reality. Let me give you an analogy. I wonder how many of you out there have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. And if you haven't, put everything down and go read it tonight. Or maybe read it to your children or your grandchildren. In the story, remember the children during the wartime of, of the Second World War, they have to go out and live in the country so they're not in danger by living in London. They go out to the old professor's house, and the old professor says, oh, yes, you know, you're free to roam around wherever you want to in the house. And so they decide, where well, we're going to explore this big mansion that's out there in the country. And they're going to play kind of like hide-and-go-seek and they go around and the youngest child of the four lucy wanders into this room and there is a wardrobe now wardrobe we don't call it that in america it's like a, a freestanding closet right and so she figures that that would be a good hiding place so she gets into the wardrobe she, she's going to hide as she gets into the wardrobe she turns around so to speak and looks out and, whoa There's a whole nother world that she knows nothing about. And of course, she's enticed. So she gets out of the wardrobe and goes into Narnia, the world. Heaven is like Narnia. It's just on the other side of the wardrobe. It's just on the other side of our experience. And God is in that place. That God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That God who is the creative the only creative and energizing reality. To go back to our quotation, it is a holy, creative, and energizing reality, self-consistent and undivided in its active power. For the Father makes all things through the Word and in the Holy Spirit. And in this way, the unity of the Holy Trinity is preserved. You see, that was the real assault of Arius. It was on the assault of the unity of the Trinity, that they were one in their being. There would be others who would make assault upon the threeness of the Trinity. That was the modalist of an earlier time. And those modalists, by the way, would resurface later in history. Uh, just parenthetically, You know, I studied in a Protestant seminary. And when we studied the history of the church in this Protestant seminary, and I'm I'm happy to say it was a very good seminary and they taught a lot of good things. But one of the things that became evident when you're studying the 16th century in the time of the Protestant Reformation, you realize that there were people in the 16th century that were denying the doctrine of the Trinity. If you've ever heard of the execution of Michael Servetus in Geneva in 1555, when Calvin lived in Geneva, that was because he was denying the Trinity. The Trinity has often been under assault. The only reason it's not much under assault right now is nobody understands it. So how come they got assault what they don't understand? If they really understood it, they'd probably assault it. The Trinity then is this being who is, he says, made all things. This unity of God is preserved in the threeness of the persons. St. Athanasius goes on, Accordingly, in the church, one God is preached. One God who is above all things and through all things and in all things. Those of you that are Roman Catholic like I am, you remember at the great Amen at the end of the Eucharistic prayer, through him, with him, and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours, Almighty Father, forever and ever. That, you see, has been a phrase that has reverberated throughout the history of the church. The phrase that this God is above all and through all and in all things. God is above all things as Father. He is the principle and the source. That's what I was talking about earlier when I said He is the uncaused cause. He's the origin of life within the Trinity. He is through all things, he, through the Word. In other words, God's being permeates reality through the presence of the Logos. And he is in all things in the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity. Now, you can imagine that if someone was a knowledgeable Arian in Athanasius' church, this must have set them afire, ooh, and to rebel against this. But Athanasius was willing to die for this faith. He was probably the greatest defender of the Trinity in the Greek-speaking eastern part of the church. But he wasn't the only one. As I mentioned earlier, in the, in the East, there was Gregory of Nyssa and the younger brother of St. Basil the Great and St. Basil's best friend, Gregory, who was mostly a monk but for a while was the bishop of Nazianz in, in Asia Minor. But now let's go to the western part of the church. And let's see another great defender of the church, Hilary of Poitiers. Now, His story is a very interesting one. And it's a little bit like St. Cyprian down in Carthage. Oh, and also like St. Ambrose. Now, these three men were, I don't know exactly how old they were because I don't remember the exact dates, but they were grown men. And in fact, they were very prosperous and successful men. They were Roman governors, or they were some type of high officials in their local cities. Irenaeus and Leon in Lyon, in Gaul or France. In the 3rd century, Cyprian down in Carthage, which was a big city. And Ambrose up in Milan. I'll kind of meld these together, but here's the basic story. None of them were baptized. They knew about Christians. They heard about Christians. And then one day, they just all up and announced, I'm going to be baptized and become a catechumen. When they did this, they, of course, were learned men. And there weren't that many learned men around, so it didn't take them very long to say, well, why don't you be a priest? And they became a priest, and then they became a bishop, and they became a very quickly. Especially Ambrose was particularly interesting because I think many people know the story about when they were trying to decide on who should be the next bishop of Milan. uh, Everybody said, Ambrose, Ambrose, Ambrose. Why Ambrose? Because Ambrose was a fairly wealthy man, and he was like the governor of that region of Milan, and he just gave everything away. When he said, I'm going to become a Christian, he gave everything away and sacrificed his life for others. And they said, this is not only a man of learning, this is a man of virtue. By the way, do I have any listeners out there tonight who are men or women of learning? Follow the example of Ambrose, the example of Hilary of Poitiers. Put your intellect and your learning at the service of the church. And of the faith. Let's go to Hillary now. He lived in the mid-fourth century, and he wrote this book on the Trinity. Now I've chosen book eight, chapter 13, for a good reason. I'd already translated that. That's one good reason, right? So that's it was easy to get. But then the another reason is this, and it's going to lead us into where I want to take us to the at the end of our time tonight. Let me go ahead and read. Let's read together. But the Lord, because he did not want to leave anything uncertain for the conscience of the faithful, taught that he himself is the effect of a natural efficacy. Translated in that way, because I'm translating it rather literally, but let me explain what he means by that. He means that an effect that comes from the nature of something In other words, it's not because you choose to be a certain way. It's because it comes from you of your nature. So he goes on. He said, that they may be one as we are one. He's quoting from John 17. I and them, Jesus saying, I and them, the disciples, and you, Father, in me, that they may be perfected into one. In other words, how is the church made perfect in its unity? It's done it by having contact with a nature that can make it one. Here we go, he goes on. I would like to ask those who insist on the unity of the will between the Father and the Son whether Christ is in us today through the truth of nature or through the agreement of our will. Let me explain. Remember what I said earlier? That some people, that they might have been sort of like Arius, but not exactly the same, they may have said that the Son is eternal, but He is a result of the will of the Father, not of the being of the Father. Now, this teaching is obviously persisting in the church 25 and 30 years later after the council of Nicaea and so hillary picks up his pen to to argue that the union between the father and the son is not a union of wills like me and my wife did when we got married many years ago we gave our wills to one another but we are not biologically related Our children are biologically related to us. But it took an act of our wills to bring us together into union. God the Father and God the Son are not united by their wills. They're united by their being. So when he says, he asks the question, I want to ask you, those of you who believe that the Father and the Son are united by your wills, their wills, is God in us through our will or through the communication of his nature to us let's go on for if the word the logos or the verbum in latin was truly made flesh and truly we take the word made flesh in the lord's food which refers to what the eucharist how can he be judged not to dwell in us naturally in a natural manner in other words when we receive the eucharist we are receiving the very divine nature of the son of god now without trying to judge people's hearts would it be too harsh for me to say that many people think of the eucharist as receiving god's love or maybe God's grace in some, I don't know, undefined, ethereal sense. The doctrine of the Eucharist and the doctrine of the Trinity are related. It's not just that we receive Jesus' love, it's not that we receive a, a sign of his grace, or even his grace. We receive his very nature. And this is not on your sheet. So if you want to write this down, believe me, you do And some of our other theologians, like Daniel and Father Hezekiah, they will know this very well. Saint Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century said this All the sacraments give us grace, but only the Eucharist gives us the author of grace. All the sacraments give us grace, but only the Eucharist gives us the author of grace wow think about that for a moment in this greatest sacrament in this as thomas called it sacramentum sacramentorum the sacrament of the sacraments that's like the song of songs the greatest sacrament what do we receive we receive the very divine nature through through the human nature of christ By receiving his body and blood that communicates with that divine nature through his person, we receive that divine nature into us. Let's go on with a quotation. He who assumed the nature of our flesh uh, now is born a man with our nature inseparable from himself. He also joined the nature of his flesh to the nature of eternity under the sacrament of his flesh, communicated to us. Thus, we are all one. Notice, we don't create unity. Unity is created by God. Thus, we are all one because the Father is in Christ, and Christ is in us. He's going back to the quotation. Remember? You and I and them, and you and me, Father, that they may be perfected in one. You see how everything depends upon the Trinity? The nature of the church, the Eucharist, our salvation, it all depends upon this doctrine of the Trinity. He goes on, whoever denies that the Father is in Christ by nature, first denies that he himself is neither in Christ nor that Christ is in him by nature. Now by nature, he doesn't mean fallen nature, he means his nature, the nature of Christ, his divine nature, divine and human. Because the Father is in Christ and Christ in us, they make us one in them. When you receive Holy Communion, and I'm still amazed at this, you see how much Holy Communion is like Jesus' birth? Out of the way, unspectacular. It just seems so simple. You go up and you take He's going to wash my hand. Bread. You take bread. And in that we're supposed to believe that we're actually receiving God in it? Just like it was hard to, when we looked at the baby Jesus in the manger of Bethel, we would have thought, can that be God? God is so humble in the way that he approaches us. If Christ truly assumed the flesh of our body and he who was born of Mary was truly a man, then he is Christ and we truly receive the flesh of his body under a mystery. There comes a point at which human language fails us and we have to revert, resort to the language of mystery. But remember, mystery in a Christian context does not mean a puzzle to be figured out so that when we get the puzzle figured out, now we know the answer. No, no. Mystery is something that we never figure out because it's always beyond us. He goes on, we will be one through this because the Father is in Him and He in us. So how in the world could we ever be satisfied with saying that the Father and the Son are united by their wills? They are united because they share the nature that the Father has given to the Son by the eternal generation of that Son. So what does this mean? What does it mean for our lives? That quotation from St. Hilary reminds me that, well. It reminds me that all of these wonderful truths about who god is as this super mundane being this eternal being this god has descended into our world to make us one with him what does that mean look in your outline between the trinity and the mystical life what it means is that salvation justification sanctification is not based on a unity of will it's not based upon our agreement of our will with god's will and the reason why i say that is this please believe me when i say i'm extremely thankful for my christian upbringing in my presbyterian home my mother was and still is today at the end of her life a devout Christian and I'm thankful for that but I grew up with the idea that by accepting Jesus by an act of my will accepting Jesus that would make me somehow vaguely one with God when I came to understand this doctrine of salvation in the ancient church I began to see that that was not the teaching of the church fathers We, because we're human beings with language and rationality, we do make decisions with our will. But that's not what saves us. That just opens the door to be saved. What's communicated to us is not just a legal act, as Luther would have had it, in which we're forgiven of our sins. What's communicated to us is the very divine being of God, We are divinized. We are deified. Not to become God, and that's where our Protestant brothers and sisters misunderstand. It's because they think we're talking about some kind of pantheism. It's not that at all. We'll always be human, even in the eschaton, when Christ returns and consummates history. But our nature will be something like what happened to Jesus, or what he showed on the Mount of Transfiguration. We will be so indwelt by the presence of the Trinity that we will, as it were, emanate this being of God out of our human nature. And one thing we can be sure, that will be supreme happiness. There's nothing that can compare in this life I retired from teaching university a few years ago, and uh, I got called to teach a an occasional theology class at the local Catholic high school. So they said, well, can you stay a few days? I said, sure. And then they said, well, can you stay a couple of weeks? I said, okay. And then they said, can you stay the rest of the semester? And I said, can you stay the rest of the year? And they said, can you come back next year? You know what? Yes, it's been a transition. I have to admit, okay. They're 16 years old and all that. But you know what? I was explaining to them today why Christians can never be Marxist. They think, that's kind of strange. But you know what I was basically teaching them? I was teaching them why Christians don't believe in an earthly utopia. And that's what Marxism teaches, that there's going to be an earthly utopia. And the American left, by the way, it embraces that same idea that somehow we can have this utopia, right? And the reason I was talking about that is because i've been reading saint thomas More. that's the name of our high school saint thomas More's utopia where he discusses this idea right whether it's feasible or not and of course if we look at the soviet union we look at cuba and all these communist nations what do we say (laughs) of course it's not it's because it fails to misunderstand human nature but even more so why is a earthly utopia not possible Because that doesn't fulfill our destiny. Our destiny, again, to quote that famous Darth Vader, it is your destiny to be in God, to be with God. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to become completely holy. Holiness is not achieved by our own merits. It's the merits of Christ being infused into us that makes us worthy of God. Do you remember at the end of the Angelus prayer, that beautiful prayer at the end? Pour forth, we beseech thee, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ thy Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection. You see, it's by it, God infusing, pouring that grace into us of his own divine life then that we are able to, as it were, ascend to his eternal life. This is why we must depend upon the Holy Spirit because in God's economy of salvation, it's the Spirit that now communicates that entire life of the Trinitarian God to us. And he does it by our prayer, by our opening our lives to him, and he does it by the Holy Spirit's blessing on the bread and the wine becoming the body and blood of Christ. You know, I really do enjoy being a theologian and teaching theology. There's only one thing I'd like to be more, and that's a mystic. And so that's why we can look, as I've given on the outline there, look at this newly minted saint, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He used to be Blessed Elizabeth. And I learned from one of my former students, who was a student at the University of Illinois, now she's a cloistered Carmelite nun. And we communicate. And she told me about St. Elizabeth again. I'd read her earlier, and I got a book, and I've translated a couple things. There's a beautiful, in French, La Trinité que j'adore, Is the book. It's a little book and it has quotations from St. Elizabeth. And some of these quotations that are here, uh, let's take the second one real quickly. Oh, my three, my all, my happiness, infinite solitude, immensity where I lose myself. I deliver myself over to you as a victim. Bury yourself. In me, that I may bury myself in you, in waiting to contemplate in your light the abyss of your greatness. There was a hymn, and I can't remember the exact words when I was growing up. It goes something like this, it's a Protestant hymn, but it's actually good theology. It says, after 10,000 years, we'll only have just begun. Because eternity awaits us. That is our destiny. To be in and with God. I'm going to finish tonight with reading just a few verses from Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14 through 19. But I think it's an appropriate way for us to bring this to closure. For this reason, he's talked about how great God is, how great God is in revealing his grace to us. And then he says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father from whom every fatherdom or every fatherhood comes both in heaven and on earth that he may give you according to the wealth of his glory by power to be strengthened to be made strong through his spirit in the inner man. And actually he says the Greek word "east" means Into the inner man. It's like God is reaching into you with the Spirit to go into the depths of your soul because all true holiness comes from the inside out. It's not imposed, it comes from the inside out. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, being rooted and grounded in love, that you may comprehend with all the holy ones. All the holy ones, the breadth, the width, the height, the depth. What does he mean? The breadth and the, of who God is, of God's love, of his attributes. Now come back to that for just a moment, that verb. He says that you may be able to, some of your versions may use grasp. And the word katalabestai in Greek Katalambano means exactly that. It means to physically grasp something or to mentally grasp something. But what it's saying is that you may be able to lay hold of this reality. And all the saints, both those that are perfected saints and those that are saints in making on earth, like you and me, God wants us to grasp the full breadth and width and height and depth of what He is. And now verse 19, that you might know the super abundant love or rather the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. There will come a time when we will not have to think anymore. And sometimes on some days I kind of log for that day because <laughs> I use a lot of my life thinking about things. But there's going to come a day when thinking will be no more. All we can do, all we will do is relish and cherish the love of Christ. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God bless you, all of my friends that have been with us. And thank you so much for this opportunity to share these wonderful truths with you. My only payment is, please pray for me.
2: Thank you very much, doctor. That was wonderful. All right, so um, we, we have a couple of minutes left for question and answer, if that's okay with you, doctor. That yeah, is. All right, let's uh, start with, we have one from uh, Mary who asked, could you explain why, this was breaking the first rule, but she, she wrote it before I said it. Could you explain why we would not be saved if Christ was 99% like God? Is it that the standard for salvation is to experience the life plan for Adam and Eve and that is divinization, something else. I have been thinking, I suppose, erroneously, that we needed to be released from the grip of the devil, and even a 99% Christ would be higher than the devil.
3: (laughs) Yes, that's a good question. It's an excellent question. And if you felt yourself uh, maybe not fully grasping this, let me say you're in good company, because believe me, this is hard for me to grasp as well. But basically it's this. When we are with God, does that mean that we're like with our friends or spouse that we're in the same room together? Is that what heaven is? Or does it mean, for example, that we've had our sins forgiven and this was the mistake of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, which again, I grew up with. I preached this, that it's a legal declaration that when your sins are forgiven, well then why shouldn't you go to heaven? If all our relationship with God is, is a legal relationship. But you see, that's the point. It's not. Our relationship with God is, as you hinted, to be like Adam and Eve. There was even, as some theologians, even Protestant theologians have said this, there was an eschatology to the garden. That is, Adam and Eve created in the image and likeness of God still weren't completely divinized. And by the way, the Eastern Fathers of the church, the Greek-speaking fathers, they emphasize this quite a bit. So, yes, in order for us to get back to God, we had to send someone that could take us 100% of the way there. We would never get there. I think purgatory must be like 99%. That is, you're there and you can just see over what it's like. And remember what St. Catherine of Genoa said? By the way, if you've never read St. Catherine of Genoa on purgatory, you really ought to. It's in the um, Classics of Western Spirituality series. St. Catherine of Genoa says that the pain of purgatory is that you see the glory of God, but you're not quite there yet. And so you feel the pain that you're not experiencing that bliss just yet.
2: Uh, All right, Roy asks, are the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, and those who believe that Christ is not divine, the Son of God, considered heretics according to the Council of Nicaea?
3: Well, let me preface it by saying you understand that we're not making judgments upon anyone's salvation. Uh, We don't know what the souls of people are like. But when we try to evaluate the doctrine of the Mormons and of the Jehovah's Witnesses, yes, they're Aryans. And they're proud to be Arians, by the way. They try to argue against the doc. They think the church went wrong and the doctrine of the Trinity. But they have some good company because Isaac Newton was an Aryan as well. <laughs> Great scientist, but bad theologian. So he believed that the Council of Nicaea had gone wrong in, in doing this. And you can understand why. And this is why we need the church to help us to stay on that tightrope of orthodoxy. Of ourselves, we might fall away, but we need the church to help us.
1: Dr. Howell, we have a question from Stephen. Uh, first he says, thank you so much, he appreciates your talk. And then he asked, could you explain more about what a nature is?
3: Yes, excellent question. The best way for us to understand that is to look at human nature. You know, by, by analogy, the divine nature. Human nature is, so I am an individual and you are an individual. You are a person. You are not a nature. But you are a person who has a nature. Now, what is that nature? The nature is two things. It's kind of like your essence of who you are. You're, and your personality and person is united to that nature. But you also share that nature with all other human beings, they have that nature too. So it's the essence, as it were, of what makes us human. You see how important this is, because for example, suppose someone has Down syndrome, They have, I think it's the 21st chromosome or something and they have an extra chromosome, they're Down syndrome. They are mentally impaired, they can't think the same level of rationality. What makes a human being human? Or what about the child that's born with, um, what's the word, microencephaly, I think it's called, you know, where they have a small brain. Are they human? By the way, the secular thinkers in our world, like Pete Singer, would say, no, they're not. They can be killed. But if you believe that human beings have a nature that is a metaphysical entity, it's everything that goes into you physically, but it's more than that. It's all that coming together as like a central control system. That's your nature. Let me give you uh, maybe one final way to think about it. If I had the ability to know absolutely every last cell or chromosome in your body, if I could analyze it and have a complete knowledge of it, would I know you? I bet you would say, well, not really, because I'm more than that. That more is that you're a subject, a human subject, a person with a nature. Part of that nature is physical, but part of that nature is beyond the physical. And we don't exactly know, you know, what that beyond the physical is, but we know that it must be there because if it weren't there, You couldn't do the things that you do. Now the contrasting philosophy is materialism, right? Philosophical materialism says you are just your brain. That's all you are. And once that's dead, you're dead, you're gone, that's it. The problem with that is such a philosophy goes against both our intuition and even our knowledge of science. As many advances as neuroscience has made in the last, let's say 20, 30, 40 years, still going to come up with how we think, how we actually do these things. And I'll give you an example, because I've stated a lot about linguistics. And we don't even understand how language works, much less more complex things than language.
1: Wonderful. I think we have time for just one more from David. During a homily at his parish, his priest uh, discussed that when we get to heaven, we'll ponder the Trinity for all eternity. Uh, Can you perhaps expand on that?
3: Uh, if it is even possible to do. I I think that's legitimate to say that, except the priest maybe was using the word ponder, and maybe we think of that in an intellectual sense. I mean, who knows what hell is like, because none of us here have been there, so we've never experienced it. What maybe he was saying was, we'll be able to explore the mystery of God as Trinity and never be able to come to the bottom of it. And if that's what the priest meant, then that is certainly true. We'll never be able to come to the depths. I mean, we can't even understand the depths of the Eucharist, and that's got some physical manifestation about it. How could we come to the depths of who God is? But what we know is that it won't matter, because we will be in God And he will, to use the human analogy, like I love to do, I get no greater joy than to hold one of my grandchildren in my arms and bring him into my embrace. And that's what God does to us. He'll bring us into his embrace. And even the joy, of, like what Jesus said John 17, to know the only true God, that's eternal life. We get a taste of that in the Eucharist. God is placing his arm. Jesus is placing his arms around us and saying, let me take you into the eternal embrace of God. That's what the Eucharist, that's why it's so important in the life of the church.
2: Great, thank you very much, doctor. Uh, I know I speak on behalf of all of us here at the ICC and all the participants for tonight. That was very wonderful and thank
0: you so much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture.